0: the true champion is always behind. And I I believe that you got to keep going in life.
1: Welcome to a special edition episode of the Game Changing Attorney podcast, featuring some of the most elite attorneys in the nation.
0: Winning is not a marathon, it's a sprint and never ends. And that's what it takes.
1: I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of CRISP, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at our conversations with the founder of the Lanier Law Firm, Mark Lanier, renowned environmental attorney and best-selling author, Robert Bellat, the founding partner of Panish and Boyle, Brian Panish, and legendary civil rights attorney, Ben Crump.
2: I was taught you speak truth to power even when it's controversial or it's unpopular. Even when it's dangerous, you speak truth to power because we got these legal educations. And shame on us if we don't use those educations to try to make the world a better place.
1: That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. To kick things off, we revisit the conversation I had with a man who needs no introduction, That's right, I'm talking about the one and only Mark Lanier. With over $20 in verdicts over the course of his career, he credits his success to his unwavering values and commitment to justice. During our conversation, Mark shared how he finds balance between being a chameleon in the courtroom while remaining authentic.
3: I think the more we know and understand ourselves, the more honest we'll be with ourselves. And I think it translates in front of a jury because juries, especially the younger jurors, but all jurors seek authenticity. Uh, I mean, don't we all seek that? I can be on your podcast, Michael, and I can give fake answers and people could sniff that out. And once they do, they discount everything else that I say. Or I can try to be authentic to who I am, try to be genuine, and in the process, people may not agree with everything I say, but they'll at least respect the fact that I'm trying to give them what I believe to be the truth. And so one of the hardest parts for me as a trial lawyer is, let let me take a step back and, and give you some insight as to how this developed with me. When I was young, we moved around all the time. My dad worked for the railroad. In the business end of the railroad and he got transferred often so i was born in dallas i'm texas i moved to fort worth i moved to shreveport louisiana then to new orleans louisiana then to abilene texas memphis tennessee pittsburgh pennsylvania rochester new york lubbock texas all by middle school and when you move around that much you're constantly making new friends you're learning new ways to talk. When I was in second grade in Memphis, Tennessee, I'd talk like a Memphis, Tennessee kid with a Southern accent and y'all and everything else. But then in the middle of that year, to move to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I had a teacher who was incensed that I would use the word y'all and a teacher who didn't like me saying vegetable because it was vegetable. And I would get in trouble in class if I didn't say things the way she wanted them said. You learn to become almost chameleon-like in the way you deal with different cultures and different aspects of things. Now, that's been a big boon to me as a trial lawyer. I have no trouble going to New York and trying cases. I tried many cases in New Jersey, uh, California, uh, you know, coast to coast, north and south, Midwest, you name it. I'll go anywhere, and, and I do fine fitting into that. But the, the the negative to it is you have a tendency, or at least I have a tendency, to imitate the people around me. I have trouble talking to someone who speaks with a Hispanic accent without almost uh, subconsciously putting a Hispanic accent into my voice. And so I worked for one lawyer for a while who was really, really successful and really good. And I thought, man, this guy's amazing but he was also inherently a rather brash, if not downright mean person. And so when he would interact with people in a courtroom, he did it in a brash, if not downright mean way. And so my work with him would give me a tendency to try to to imitate or emulate that same thing. And yet I'm not really a brash, downright mean person. I tend to be uh, uh, the opposite end of, of that pendulum swing, I hope, and I believe. And and so it came across inauthentic to my actual nature. And I had to realize, and, and I reached a point one day where a lawyer from Florida said to me, it was David Lipman, David said to me, Lanier, how many cases did you have to try before you realized you just need to be yourself. And I said, David, I can remember exactly when I turned that corner because there came a time where uh, it was no longer be the chameleon imitating those that, that are successful. It was rather learn their tools and what makes them successful, but integrate them into who you are as a person. Be authentic to who you are. And that authenticity will pass the smell test with your audience, be they jurors or be they a church congregation.
1: People think Mark Lanier, they think this is a great storyteller, you know, without a doubt. And I mean that truly as as a compliment. Were you always a good storyteller or do you believe that that's something that developed over time?
3: Well, I think to some degree, I came by that, honestly. My mom was an amazing storyteller. When I was growing up as a kid, you'd always have your friends over and I'd have friends over for a slumber party, you know, third grade, big thing to do. Well, my friends quickly learned mom could cook and mom could tell stories. So whenever they came over, I'd want to go out and play baseball or throw the football or play basketball. They were like, nah, let's just eat your mom's cookies and have her tell us stories. When I was a young man and we've got a, a son followed by four daughters, our two oldest daughters, Uh, were close enough in age and their personalities were such that they would bicker and argue and fight like crazy. And it just really drove me to wits end because I was like, oh, mercy, I'm going to have them in the car every day. I would drive them to school. It would be 30 minutes of them Fussing and fighting in the back seat while I'm driving them. And I thought, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to fix this? And the solution for me was to tell them a story. And every year, I would tell them a story. And I say every year because it would take a year for me to finish, it would be 30 minutes. I would start the story as they got in the car, they would listen to it carefully. I would tell them the story. And then, right as they're getting out of the car, I'd have it at a cliffhanger position. Dad, tell us what now you got to get out. I'll finish it tomorrow. So the next day they'd get in the car for me to drive them in the morning. Dad, remember, here's where we were in the store. Now tell us. And I'd resolve the cliffhanger, but I'd get continue on in the story to get to another cliffhanger right at the time we were pulling up to school. So I basically spent two or three years telling my kids a story every morning for 30 minutes, trying to keep the attention of a second and third grade daughter and if you can tell stories every day for 2 years to keep the attention of an elementary school kid then you'll learn and cultivate the ability to tell stories in no time
1: so let's shift gears you know to the trials aspect and with some of these you know the opposition you've been going up against like a Johnson and Johnson for example do you get nervous you know walking into a courtroom when when you're facing let's say a Johnson
3: and Johnson no, I don't get nervous. I get excited. You know, it, it's really interesting. And this, this again, is, is part of how I try a case from out of my faith. You know, I'm in there because I think this is where God wants me to be. It's that clarity of purpose you were talking about before. I think this is what I'm supposed to do. I think I'm in here. You, you know, David wasn't nervous when he was picking up the stones and he was about to fight Goliath, even though Goliath was a giant that had frightened the rest of Israel. David's attitude was... Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he's going to taunt the armies of God? This guy's a fool. He picks up the stones and the rest of its history. We use David and Goliath uh, uh, as an apt illustration in all aspects of culture today. So I kind of get excited. It's kind of like, I can't wait to do this. And, And it's really interesting because generally, I think a lot of the defense lawyers I've been against Don't have that same level of excitement. I think they do tend to have nerves. And I can't tell you how many cases where I've gone up to them knowing we've got a packed courtroom, knowing that opening statements are about to be given to not just a packed courtroom, but to a lot of media that are present, newspapers, uh, even TV cameras, et cetera. And I'll walk up to the other side before the jury comes in and I'll stick my hand out there and shake my hands and say, guys, isn't it a great honor that we get to do this? Can you believe we've got this chance to do this today? I want to wish you guys the very best in this. And, uh, uh, you know, if we don't pause before these moments and recognize we're getting to do something few people get to do, and we, we, and we don't zealously relish this moment, then heaven help us. So, so enjoy it, guys. I'll see you at the other side. And they're like, uh, 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 uh gee, uh, 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 yeah, I guess. And it's almost intimidating to some of them because they're so nervous about this. And I seem to just be, uh, I mean, I feel like I've got a day at the beach. This is just a cool chance to do something really fun. When you're on top,
1: along with great success, often comes a giant target on your back. As the saying goes, everyone wants to take down the king. And many attorneys see winning in court against the great Mark Lanier as the ultimate achievement. But Mark isn't fazed.
3: In fact, he welcomes the challenge. I've been in cases before where people have said, you know, uh, I'm gonna be the one, I'm taking you out. And they seem to be trying it just for that. And I love those opportunities. Because that means that their focus is not where it should be. Their focus ought to be on the truth and getting to the truth in front of the jury. Instead, their focus is on taking me down. So I lost a case one time to this fellow. And there are a variety of reasons I lost the case. Um, and he actually posted on his website at a big international firm, I beat Mark Lanier. And I mean, these are people who have jo- uh, lawyers that clerked for the Supreme Court of the United States, and they put that on their page or have handled all of these things. And he's just got on there. I beat Mark Lanier one time 11 years ago. And I'm, I'm like, oh, gee, really? So he gets in to try another case against me, and he's hired by the company because he's, quote, the Mark Lanier killer. And um, uh, we go in and we try the case, and the jury returns a verdict of, $4.69 billion. One of the reporters who wrote up the trial said to me afterwards, they said, uh, yeah, the defense lawyer was saying that that uh, he's beaten you before. And so now y'all are one in one. And I I kind of laughed and I said, yeah, I guess that's one way to see it. I just see it differently. And she said, how do you see it? I said, I see it every time I try a case against him. I win on average two point three billion dollars, and, uh, uh, and and laughed about it. But you know, anybody who's going to hold themselves out as I'm the Mark Lanier killer, that's not the focus. That's not what it should be. And and so I count that as a good thing for me. That helps me.
1: So, and in, in with that verdict that you mentioned, so I think it was in, in July of 2018, that was the $4.69 billion verdict. I think it was the largest verdict in the country that year. I mean, I have to ask, what, what was that day like?
3: Uh, that was a good day. Uh, that was a real good day. It's on appeal, obviously, and uh, uh, we'll see what happens on appeal. But the thing about that case was it was a monumental issue that had not been tried before. And we believe that Johnson & Johnson baby powder had asbestos in it and that that asbestos had caused the ovarian cancer in our 22 plaintiffs. I still believe that today. And it was the start of a chain of events that led ultimately to Johnson & Johnson several months ago, or six weeks ago, pulling that talcum baby powder off of the shelves in America and Canada and saying they will not sell it anymore. I think that saves countless lives uh, into the future. And it's a huge thing. And when I talked to the jury, one of the things that I talked to the jury about, their actual damages in that case wound up being actual damages of, oh, right at, uh, I don't know, it was 500 million or 600, 700 million for actual damages. But on the punitive damages, I said, you got a chance to make a statement here. And this is like a volume control on a stereo. The higher you dial it, the louder it will be. And you can make a statement that will resonate throughout this courtroom, or you can make a statement that will be heard throughout this courthouse. You can make a statement that all of St. Louis will hear. You can make a statement that all of Missouri can hear, or you can choose right now at this moment, you have the power to make a statement that will be heard throughout the United States of America and around the world. I said, Johnson & Johnson doesn't have their stroke in here. They don't have their president in here. They don't have the chairman of the board in here. But I promise you, those people are in a boardroom in New Jersey, and they will have their cell phones on, and they are going to want to hear what you have to tell them. And that phone call will come in. And if you write this small, there will be champagne corks popping in the boardroom at j But if you write this correctly, they're going to set down their phones and say, oh, my goodness, we cannot continue to do business this way. How do we change what we're about and become good corporate citizens? That's the power you've got. And so when the jury came back, I was overjoyed and thrilled, first and foremost, because I had 22 women Uh, five or six of whom had already died. Since that point in time, three more have died from their cancer. I had these women who had, had invested their heart and their soul and their life in trying to get justice on this, and it was a thrilling moment for them. I had a team who had worked so hard in this case. It was a thrilling moment for them, and then the jury had become so invested in it. It was a thrilling moment for them and a chance to finally, after months, get to talk to the jury where they could talk back. And not just sit on the other side of the bar. So that was a, that was a Kodak moment, if you will. That was, that was a really special time for me.
1: Next up, we're revisiting my conversation with Robert Belut, renowned environmental attorney and best-selling author. His groundbreaking work, which inspired the Hollywood blockbuster Dark Waters and the documentary The Devil We Know, exposed the shocking truth behind one of the most notorious cases in class action history. As we revisit his epic journey, let's hear Robert's firsthand account on that fateful day, October 9th, 1998, when a phone call from Earl Tennant set in motion a battle against a corporate giant that would span
4: two decades. You know, I had spent the first eight years or so of my career Helping our corporate clients doing a lot of work for big chemical companies all across the country at uh, Superfund cleanup sites. That was something that was uh, really taking up a lot of time in the early 90s uh, you know, there were companies that were being dragged in to Massive multi-million dollar cleanups all across the country under the Superfund law and so a lot of that's what I was doing uh, Most of the days were helping our clients get permits to emit things into the air into the water into landfills and then one day I was sitting in my office and I got a call and this man on the other end of the line starts telling me all about cows dying on his property and I need to help him. And frankly, I was about to hang up. <laughs> I wasn't sure how this, this gentleman got my name, why he was calling me. This is definitely not something you know that I did. Um, and it was at that point he said, well, I got your name from your grandmother, And so I really kind of paused and listened and tried to figure out why. Why was he getting my name from my grandmother? What was the connection here? And what I uh, soon found out was that he was raising cows on property outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia. And that just so happened to be the town where my mom and her entire family had grown up. And my dad was in the military, so we moved around a lot. But we typically would come back to Parkersburg for family holidays, for birthdays. So I had spent a lot of time there and really kind of saw it as one of my hometowns, so to speak. So when I heard that this guy was calling from Parkersburg, I immediately understood that connection. And what he told me was he was having this problem with his cows dying just dropping dead. And he had been trying to get lawyers there locally to talk to him, but was having all kinds of trouble. So he had been talking to his neighbor, who happened to have been on the phone with my grandmother that day. And the neighbor was longtime friends with my grandmother who said, hey, my grandson is an environmental lawyer up in Cincinnati. I'm sure he can help you. So that's that's how that connection came to be. And so when I heard that, I said, okay, you know, I'm happy to, to listen to what your issue is. Bring up whatever your, whatever information you have. He claimed he had videotapes and photographs. I just need to, needed to look at what he had. And once I saw that, I'd see the problem. So we invited him up. That was back uh, 22 years ago.
1: I remember reading about this in the book and and even seeing in the movie. And and one of the things that still I'd love to ask you about is just like, given the type of law that you guys were practicing and the fact that it was corporate defense, I'd still would love to know, how did you get your partners on board with this, with even taking on Earl's case?
4: Well, you know, when we first sat down um, and, you know, the tenants came into our offices back in 1998, it just so happened that the head of our environmental practice group was walking down the hall and saw this gentleman whose name was Mr. Tennant and his wife with their boxes, and I invited him in and said, hey, Tom, you know, want to look at these videos? Maybe you can uh, help out with with this issue, and he did. He came in and sat down. So I had the head of our environmental group looking at these videotapes and photographs with me, Um, and as we were looking at this, we thought, you know, hey, this is something we could help these folks out with. This is a landfill. This is something coming out of a landfill, some white foaming water. This is what I did every day. This, you know, I helped companies get permits to run landfills. And it seemed like a fairly straightforward case. You know, here was somebody complaining about white foam coming out of a landfill that was permitted by the state of West Virginia. Certainly, we could pull the permits, do what I typically did for our corporate clients, figure out what was there, maybe at above permitted levels, or maybe there was some regulated material that was being discharged too high. We could get to the bottom of that pretty quickly. It seemed like a rather straightforward, narrow case. And after all, this was a family friend. Uh, So, you know, when we initially took it on, We had no idea, you know, that this would actually lead us to discovering that this was a problem that went far beyond that one family in one farm, that it was something that affected almost the entire planet.
1: It seems confounding that something like this could happen. After all, isn't this the reason why the EPA exists? I wanted to hear Robert's take on the factors that
4: allowed so many harmful chemicals to go unregulated for so long. Something I really try to spend some time exploring in the book, Exposure, you know, is how did this happen? How is it that you can have chemicals like this? And it's not just PFOA. Like you mentioned, PFOA is just one chemical in what we now know to be a huge class of these man-made chemicals that all share this really odd and unique carbon-fluorine bond. We call them now PFOS per- and polyfluoroalkylated substances. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of these man-made chemicals. PFOA is just one of them in that group. And unfortunately, that whole group has essentially escaped or been under the radar of regulators since they were first invented. And it's because these federal laws focusing on setting up rules for testing chemicals before they come out of the market, those rules didn't come into play until after these chemicals were already out there and already being used. And this is one reason, for example, that folks pointed to this story in this chemical, PFOA, as one of the prime reasons why that federal law needed to be changed and revamped. And in 2016, There were finally changes made to try to beef up those rules, but it took a long time and it took years to get this story out for people to understand this is how this system really works. And there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of chemicals out there that have escaped this entire regulatory process.
1: And I want to make sure that like the people listening really do appreciate because, you know, reading the book, I, I can tell you this 20 year battle, the fact of like how long so many aspects of this case had taken the amount of work involved and so on. And in fact, I think even two and a half years after meeting with Earl, there was the famous letter, right? The one in March uh, in 2001, when you guys you put together this famous letter, I think it weighed like, you know, each copy was like 12 pounds or so. But this was this is backing up Earl's theory, right? That there was something in the water, if you could speak to
4: that. Yeah. This was after we had spent a lot of time going through these internal documents from DuPont and I started piecing together what the story about what was known that this chemical was as toxic as it was. It p- presented all these health threats and then not realizing not only were there thousands of tons of this of sludge containing this chemical in the landfill, that Mr. Tennant was complaining about, which helped us resolve that case for him once we figured that out. But we we then saw that the chemical was not just in the water these cows were drinking coming out of this landfill. It was in the public drinking water. And DuPont had known this going back into the early 1980s. They had been secretly testing the public water. And not only was it in the public water in West Virginia and Ohio, on both sides of the river, it had been found in the general population's blood. And nobody really was understanding that. So looking at all these all this information, putting these documents together, we realized there was a massive public health threat going on that nobody really was even aware of. The regulators didn't seem to know that this chemical even existed, let alone that it was in water and blood all over the country. And the public certainly didn't know. So I I felt that we needed to make sure the public and the regulators and the scientific community were alerted to this threat. And that's why I put that letter together and very naively at the time thought, (laughs) once we send this letter that attaches all of this information, this was March 6th of 2001, that certainly the regulators would swoop in, set drinking water standards and guidelines, yet here we are, 20 years later. And that still hasn't happened. And again, that's why, as I try to point out in the book, and as you see in the film, this is why folks are now realizing we have major problems with this entire system in the way chemicals are regulated. That even when this information comes out and there's information available, look how difficult it is to get things actually regulated here in the United States. It's a a major, major concern.
1: And I recall, I think in 2004, there was a mediation where there was, you know, an initial settlement reached, but the idea was that there would be a science panel. I'd love to ask you, I mean, did did you know that this would lead to a seven-year epidemiological study? I think at the time, maybe even still, it's one of the largest ever done. But if you could speak to what the science panel was, the purpose
4: of it, and what did they actually study? Yeah, well, you know, nobody had really ever done this before. So we, we weren't sure exactly, frankly, how long it would take or how well it would work. Um, but what we had been seeing as we went through all of the documents and went through the legal process with the class action, the arguments became pretty clear that DuPont was making uh, about what the science said. Even though we were seeing all kinds of animal data that was showing cancer, you know, their own scientists confirming this chemical caused cancer in rats. What we would hear is, well, yeah, but that's animals. And, uh, and the rodent studies don't have any relevance to humans, even though that's why you're doing the rodent studies. You don't care if the rat's getting cancer. You're trying to predict whether humans will. Same thing with the monkeys and the other animals. Well, then we, when we started saying, well, okay, well, now we have your human studies. We have your workers' data that's showing problems as well. Ah, well, but those are highly exposed workers. You don't have any data that's telling you what it might do to people drinking it at these trace, what they called trace levels, even though it was way above their own guideline, levels in the water. So when we sat down to resolve this case, we knew that we had this basic fight going on where DuPont was saying there wasn't enough data to say what this would do to people exposed in this community. And even the human data we did have, they said the studies hadn't been big enough. There weren't enough people. There weren't tens of thousands of people being studied. So we couldn't draw valid conclusions. So we, we came up with this idea to have independent scientists look at all of that data and do whatever new studies were necessary to finally address this issue that there simply wasn't a big enough study, there wasn't enough data, so to finally do that, and we had, frankly, we knew we needed tens of thousands of people. So we we had this idea to pay class members to come in to provide blood data, to provide medical information. We had no idea whether people would do that, but we ended up getting sixty-nine thousand people to participate. So you had all that data now going into these scientists who then had a blank check to design whatever studies they needed to confirm this. And the amount of data, the amount of people participating, the amount of studies needed, it led to an incredibly long process, but one that eventually confirmed what we'd been seeing, that this chemical presented a serious threat to humans, including cancer threat.
1: Such a long process with incredibly high stakes must have taken a toll on Robert personally. I asked him to pull back the curtain and share what the experience was like.
4: It was incredibly stressful on a a number of levels. And, you know, I addressed that in the book. You see this in the film where, you know, as we're waiting as we're waiting for the scientific process to play out, people continue to be exposed. It's not like, to, um, uh, you know, that everything stopped. I mean, people continue to get sick. People continue to develop disease. I I would be contacted all the time about the uh, family members in the community who had died, you know, while this process was playing out. So that weighs heavily on you, you know, knowing that you've set up this process. In the meantime, you know, people are having real serious Complications while they're waiting. And at the same time, you have to think about what was going on in the world during this period of time 2006 to 2012 massive economic meltdown. You know, the economy was imploding. So, you know, to be having a case like this hanging out there. Where, you know, we were spending still a lot of time, a lot of expense with scientists trying to track what was happening, what was being published to make sure the scientists on the science panel, you know, were aware of all the data. It was incredibly stressful because nobody knew how this process would play out uh, and whether these people would, would eventually be able to get the relief they were entitled to.
1: And as this, you know, basically turned into a full, like, you know, MDL, right, the the C8 personal injury litigation, talk to me about the decision to bring on board, like, Mike Papantonio and Gary Douglas to try these cases.
4: When the scientific panel finally completed their work, and by 2012, they had announced that this chemical was, in fact, confirmed to be linked with six different diseases, including kidney cancer and testicular cancer. Well, under our settlement agreement that we had negotiated, Everybody in that community, the 70,000 people, all of their personal injury claims had been put on hold pending the outcome of this process. Well, once these links had been confirmed, everybody was told, you now have the right to move forward with injury claims if you have one of these diseases. There were about 3,500 people in that community who came forward claiming that they had one of these diseases and, and wanted to pursue claims. Those all got consolidated into one multi-district litigation proceeding up in Columbus, Ohio in 2013. And that process was, was going to move forward to start taking cases to trial. DuPont was still denying that it was responsible or should be held liable for this, despite what the scientists had said. And at that point, we knew we needed the, some of the top trial lawyers in the country to be able to help us present this case to trial and get these cases worked up. And, you know, Mike, I had, I had known Mike Papantonio from, from earlier, and they were the best. And so we brought them in, Mike, and uh, the Douglas and London firm came in as well. You know, some of the best folks that for handling and managing multi-district litigation proceedings and did an absolutely fantastic job. In getting these cases prepared and through trials, resulting in all verdicts for the plaintiffs in in these first uh, three cases that went to trial. Next up, we're revisiting our conversation with Brian Panish,
1: founding partner of Panish, Shea & Boyle, who secured some of the most significant jury verdicts in history. With over 500 verdicts and settlements exceeding $1 million, his achievements are nothing short of remarkable. But Brian's journey to the top was no overnight success. During our conversation, he shared a candid glimpse into the sacrifices required to reach the level of success he's achieved today.
0: You know, I had kind of a plan when I started out. I must say that my father helped me. And my first part of my plan was to go work in a defense firm and try as many cases as I could, take as many depositions as I could, and start working on my skills and going to court as much as I could. And I did that for a few years, and I won every trial, not bragging. Many of them were very easy. Maybe at times I was tough on the plaintiffs because I wanted to go to trial and get that experience. Then I went to what I thought at the time was known as the top, well, which was known, plaintiff firm in California that let young guys try cases, hard cases, but they gave them the opportunity. So I went to work for a guy who was in charge of the firm, who's at the time president of the California Trial Lawyers. And for that whole year, he was in Sacramento. There was huge tort initiatives, which I learned through him, a lot about the legislative process, preserving the practice, which you never would know about at that stage of my career. And I got to do things on my own and learn and learn from the other lawyers in the firm, but just go out and doing it. And the first three trials that they gave me, a paralyzed gentleman, great guy, a brain damage, serious injury. I lost every case. I thought I could win them. But when I think back, there's no way I was going to win those cases. But I was handling them as if I was winning. I was going to win. And I lost and I got brought back up. And eventually, almost three years after being there, a little less, I won a big case. And as a police cover up for a family who's big in the news. And I realized the one thing Grover says, Tim Grover, that people that never won, They don't know what it takes. They don't really know. So they don't know what it takes to win. And I know what it takes. And I I look back at athletics and the givens, though, the discipline, the accountability, the efficiency, working on your technique, all of that is a given. But it's the ups and downs. And I I like to think of trials. One of my uh, mentors as a young lawyer. We're driving home. We're defending this case. We're going back to the court, and he's from Oklahoma. He says, you know, Brian, there's no greater thing feeling in life to driving back to the office, having a great day in court. He says, but there's no worse thing than driving back to the office, ever getting your ass kicked, and having a bad game. And what the key is, is to get off that roller coaster and try to stay in the middle as you go through these highly emotional, intense days in trial. So I think building on that, then I got in a firm where it was a great firm, then it changed to a smaller firm, but still, you know, good size. And I got the opportunity to do more cases, started doing on my own. And I started to win some big cases and I won a really big case. And then I went some more. And eventually I felt that, look, you know, I want to do it my way. It's not, we didn't agree on everything, but also, I wanted to do it my way, and so I started my firm with three attorneys, and I think within like 12 years, we had 35 attorneys. And now, it's the same thing, though. I'm really into team building. I'm into training of all lawyers, working on your skills. We do cross-examination seminars, in-house training to really help the lawyers grow, just like in football whether you're a defensive back or a linebacker, every day as part of practice, they call individual sessions of the practice schedule. You're working on those skills that you need to do better. And you keep working on them and working on them. And I think lawyers, you know, they watch seminars and they read books, which is good. But I think to actually practically working on those skills, now in the area of Zoom, I myself did with Roger Dodd, extensive cross-examination during the pandemic school by Zoom with witnesses and everything. Then I took that and I used it in cases, and I just continued to practice it over 50-plus depositions during the pandemic. I mean, as Mark McCormick was a guy that started CAA, was a big-time agent, he always said the true champion is always behind, and I I believe that. you got to keep going, and life... A Winning is not a marathon, it's a sprint and never ends. And that's what it takes. What's well, really fascinating
1: to me, because I, I know a lot of people, especially when they're just getting started, they've got that, you know, the Maslow's needs just to survive. But when you've reached a certain level of success, I think to, you know, to keep that fire burning. And, and I want to ask in particular, you know, that landmark verdict that you had $4.9 billion verdict against General Motors. I'm just curious, what was that day like? And then what happened right after that?
0: Well, you know, that day was 22 years ago last Friday, and some people posted some social media and things in the firm and the lawyers that were on the trial team. We had a great team. And I thought back, and I remember it very well, the case was a bifurcated, it was a product liability, high-speed impact by a drunk driver, explodes his car, five people, six people seriously burned high speed. General Motors was saying we met the state of the art. We had a lot of great discovery that had been done by other lawyers around the country that helped show that, what well, we claimed General Motors had conducted a cost benefit analysis and determined that the fix the cars would cost $8.59 and to fight the lawsuits would be cheaper. So they'd rather just fight the lawsuits. And that was our claim. So we try the case. First phase, jury comes back like July 5th for 109 million compensatory damages, which at that day, that was real money, 109 million. But they found 11 to 1 that they malice, oppression, fraud. So then we went into the punitive damage phase. Jury goes out. Jury comes back with this $4.9 billion verdict. I wasn't that shocked, I must say. But then the media just took off. We had a big press conference with all the jurors. It was national. At that time, CNN had headline news. Show you how news cycles are. Every 15 minutes, all you would see was me with this young, poor African-American girl who had her arm burned off in her face, just repeating, and me saying things you know, like we caught them red-handed and profits over people, and it played all over the world until a week later when... GFK crashed and it was wiped off the news. But after that I started to have more recognition doing more trials and I you know I didn't stop with that verdict it was great we had to fight it we ended up settling the case clients are doing fine but that was just kind of the beginning for me 20 that was 22 years ago last Friday and I'd won a lot of big cases before that I would say but obviously that one paled in comparison I just had a great experience being with the trial team. So my friends that I'd been friends with for most of my life, and we really enjoyed it. And we moved on, though. I mean, it was a battle, but we celebrated a little bit. I had a, my son was born two weeks later. My wife says, "Of course, you have great timing." And to go back to that, the sacrifices. This would be my third child. My wife says to me. Look, man, you've been in all these trials, you know, you're not here all the time with these other two. So I'm making you go to this refresher baby course on this day. I go, sure, no problem. I'll do it. Well, it just so happens that day is the Saturday after the verdict, which is on the front page of every newspaper. My voicemail's full and I'm like, come on, can I, can I get a pass? She goes, no, and bring back the certificate. Don't leave early. So I was right back to reality within 12 hours of the verdict. It was kind of how I lived my life. So it was fun. It was exhilarating. It did a good thing for those people, but there was a lot more work to be done. It's interesting to me,
1: like after a high like that, because I imagine you, you must have been extremely proud, I mean, extremely grateful just even to, for that moment in life. Was there any kind of down moment right after that? Just, just wondering if like you, know, you could have that type of moment again?
0: You know, I always thought I would never be in like a bigger case, but I didn't worry about it. And, and I've been other, you know, great moments, maybe not as much money, but just the same. And And that in my career, if I rank all my verdicts, that wouldn't be my number one verdict. You know, I know we've been talking a lot about the wins, but just for the
1: people listening, because you know, Brian, I imagine that it, it hasn't always been on the way up. But were there any cases looking back that you really wanted to win that you thought you'd win but had to take a painful loss?
0: Well, I think I won every case in the courtroom. So I, I so I lost the first three cases. I didn't lose too many cases. I think I had lost two trials in like 17 years. And I was doing a lot of trials. Now, some of them were cases I shouldn't have lost. And what is a loss? A loss could be getting less money. Let's say they offer you 10 million, you got five, you know, that's not really a win. But the Michael Jackson case was a tough case. Tried it for six or seven months. And I was a little bit worried, like, how am I gonna handle losing? Because I knew that was a possibility in every case. And this case was hard. It was fought hard. They were prepared. They did a good job. They had a huge force of lawyers. And the jury came back. I was actually having a medical procedure with propofol, ironically. And the jury lost. I went home. Two of the guys came over. We had a beer. And we were down. But like the next day, I was okay. I did the best I could. And I did. And it was hard. And with the jury, some of the rulings, whatever you want to use to justify why you lost, we lost. We got beat, they did better, they won, so be it. But it made me realize, and then right after that, although I was doing another trial, helping these lawyers in my firm, we won a big verdict during the Michael Jackson case on a break. But the next trial, I go right into the next trial, wrongful death case. I have a bad feeling about it, jury's out. I entered into this high-low agreement, and then I lose that case. So two cases in a row, but I felt good about that one. I knew I had a feeling it was a hard case, and the client ended up getting money. Let me think. I don't know if I lost any since then, maybe. But losing, you know, everyone says you learn a lot from losing. I, I didn't really learn that much. I learned some some things, but you know, you're going to lose this my dad. I would always tell him, I never lost a case. And he'd say, well, any lawyer tells you that they haven't tried very many cases, but it's not like sports where you get a game the next week where you get to get that bad taste or in the NBA or major league baseball the next day or in football week here. It could be who knows how long it could be a pandemic. You don't have a trial for a year. For the trial lawyers that are going to be listening to this, and,
1: and many of them are thinking, man, that must must be nice. Look at all the opportunities Brian had, all these different trials coming up, and they may not be in that position today. W- what advice would you give them to really set them up to have those types of opportunities?
0: Well, I think there's no reason that you can't have opportunity. You just got to, how do you find it? Whether it be go to the government, if you want to get, be a lawyer, a trial lawyer, you be a district attorney, public defender, city attorney, there's opportunities there. Now, you may have to get paid less. My first job, I got 27000 I was happy. I was living in a rent-control house at the beach, paying like $200 rent, living with my buddies from law school, and we were just working all the time. We didn't care about money. And I wanted to learn. And I think if you're driven by money, you're not going to be successful. And you're not going to enjoy what you're doing. You have to find what you'd like and get good at it. And you're going to do good
1: it really seems like to be the best, it requires a certain level of almost like obsession, if you will. Right. So just, almost this level of just always wanting to be, be better and insatiability. If you will, did you, did you find that the case with you?
0: Yes. I, I think as my good friend, John Moring would say, hungry. And I, I really believe that I think part of it's in your DNA, you know, whether you're really rich or really poor, if, if you really have that, I call it the competitiveness. If you really have that desire, It doesn't matter. It's all about the passion. And when you're trying cases, the jurors know they can see it when you believe it. And you're asking for a lot of money and they can see you believe it and you've established this credibility. You had a lot better chance to get there.
1: To round out this lineup of litigating legal leaders, we revisit my conversation with Ben Crump, renowned civil rights attorney and the founder of Ben Crump Law. He's represented the victims of many of the most high-profile lawsuits in history, and as a result, has become a household name, earning a spot on Time's annual list of the top 100 most influential people in the world and being featured in the Netflix documentary, Civil. During our conversation, I asked Ben to speak to the people and experiences that inspired his decision to pursue a career in law.
2: You know, my mother and my grandmother had a a profound influence on my life. I, I don't know if you saw the documentary that Netflix had on me several, but it talked a lot about my grandmother. God bless that woman. She was the wisest person I ever met on the face of this earth, even though she only had an eighth grade education because in North Carolina, you quit going to school and you went to crop tobacco. But my grandmother understood the importance of education she took out a newspaper subscription, even though she could barely read. And i never forget, I was uh, going to the second grade, and every day after I would finish my homework, my grandmother and I would try to read articles in the newspaper, and we'd try to sound out the words and figure out the context of the articles uh, about people like Mother Teresa and uh, President Jimmy Carter and Ann Wassa died in the Peace Accord. And what was amazing about that is what my grandmother really was doing was showing me that there was a bigger world out there for me than just Lumberton, North Carolina. And so my mother worked two jobs for as long as I can remember, man. She said, life is hard you make it fair by what you bring to the table. And if you don't bring that to the table, don't expect anybody to let you sit down at the table. She told me, education is something to bring to the table because once you have it up here, nobody can take it away from you. And she said, and when you get to the table, you make sure you try to leave room to help others get to the table. When I made the decision to become a lawyer, It was partly watching them. I went to Brown versus Board of Education with all deliberate speed, finally got to Lumberton, North Carolina in the late 70s. They bused us little black children from South Lumberton, literally across the tracks to North Lumberton to the affluent white communities. And whether they had a new school, new technology, new facilities, New books, new everything. And so I remember coming back home one day from school, crossed the tracks, and I, I just observed our neighborhood. You know, you had all the dilapidated buildings. And uh, I just remember thinking, I wonder why people on our side of town have it so challenging, and people on the other side of town seem to have it so accommodating and affluent and better. And uh, I remember my mother saying, well, the reason we got to go to the new school with the new books and the new facilities and everything was because of Brown versus the Board of Education and an attorney named Thurgood Marshall. And I decided right then at nine years old, when I grow up, I'm going to become an attorney like Thurgood Marshall And fight to make a better situation for people who live in my community, for people who look like me, to have equal opportunity, a better opportunity at the American dream. And from that day to this one, that's what I endeavor to do every day I wake up, every day. I I, I never doubt what my mission is when I wake up. It's interesting. I mean,
1: that you mentioned some of the trade-offs. You fast forward to present day. I hear that, you know, unfortunately, you and your staff, you're getting frequent death threats. You've got critics. I mean, there's all sorts of challenges you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. You talk about this in the documentary in Civil, that there's critics that say you play the race car for profit. Some say the single most destructive force in America. I mean, it's just amazing. Like, I, do you ever think, like, just for where you came from, what your life was, the work you're doing today, to hear these sort of things and now to deal with these types of challenges, I mean, what's that like for you?
2: I try not to think about it much because I know what my objective is. God blessed me with this influence for a reason, and I have to use it to help those who have no influence, who have no voice. Fox News said that I'm the most dangerous man in America, and I scratched my head. I said, wow, all I'm trying to do is help black people get equality. What's so dangerous about that? But we have to deal with the threats and it was hard to agree to do the documentary over that because I understand the choice I make every day, but obviously I exposed my wife and family in the documentary. And that was That was a very methodical decision. I had to think about that a lot. I did it essentially because I understood the global bullhorn that Netflix has, you know, almost 300 million people, 300 million homes to be able to speak truth to power is why I did it. But it it does come with some risk uh, because people do sick things. Right now I'm representing eight of the 10 families who lost their loved ones to a young white supremacist who went in to Buffalo, New York, drove three hours from his own home to come to a black community and kill all those innocent people in that supermarket. And in his manifesto, in his own words, he said his objective was to kill as many black people as he could. And so I I don't take the death threats for granted. Uh, We don't take them lightly at the Ben Crump Law Firm, but we are unafraid in what we do. And if, God forbid, something were to happen, I I think there could be no more nobler way to sacrifice your life for than fighting for the future of your children. They are worth the fight. They are worth the fight. And so... I get it. Uh, my heroes, uh, Thurgood, life was in constant peril. I mean, I may have it hard, but, you know, he had to move every night. He When he came to town, all the black people would be excited and happy saying, Thurgood is coming. And I get that because, you know, when I decide to take a case, all the black people get happy. But then you also have these you know, white supremacist people like with Thurgood, the clan knew he was coming to down and they were preparing to kill him, literally. And so every night when they found a way to stay, there were crosses burning outside and so forth, and he would have to move in uh, the dark of night just to survive, but he kept showing up. And what an example for us lawyers. Uh, Whether black, white, brown, it doesn't matter. You show up for right. I was taught you speak truth to power, even when it's uh, controversial or it's unpopular, even when it's dangerous, you speak truth to power because we got these legal educations and shame on us if we don't use those educations to try to make the world a better place. And for the people who are listening to this podcast, whether it's other trial lawyers,
1: their teams and you know, and beyond, I believe that the majority, if not all, will agree with you and they want to do more. How do they contribute to this? Because I imagine when you see a, a black square on Instagram, I, I don't know how much that's doing. What do you recommend someone does if they, they're on the side, they don't like the police brutality, they, they want to not just raise awareness for it, but they want to drive real change?
2: Yeah, you know, Michael, it's like Dr. King said, We all have a role to play in this struggle for equality and justice. And everybody doesn't have to be on the front lines with me and Reverend Al and the Black Lives Matter activists. We all have a role to play. It's trying to do something to make a difference in your community, to take on a mentee, somebody who is totally opposite from you, somebody who... It has been written off by society to take them on as a a mentee and try to help them be able to achieve the American dream. And and to the trial lawyers, you know, you can support scholarship funds to try to make the profession be more diverse. I I have at the St. Thomas University College of Law, we have the Ben Crump uh, Social Justice Center where we are focused on giving scholarships to people who will commit to do civil rights work for 10 years after they graduate. And even though you might not do it, contribute to the scholarship fund. And so we have a lot of young people who want to do this type of work and no, it doesn't pay as much and all this stuff as, you know, a lot of my trial lawyer lawyer brethrens. but we can do good and do well at the same time. And so, uh, help those young people be able to get through law school to do their civil rights work, to fight for wrongfully convicted people, to fight for people who are being overcharged and overconvicted. Fight for people in these communities that are being exposed to environmental racism on a regular basis. Because the other thing, you can help your business too. Now, I can help your law practice, too. I think of these mass torts and such. The people who are often affected the most are marginalized people of color, minority communities. And so when they see you doing these cases of uh, human and civil rights, they say, hey, I remember that person. We should go to them. We send all the advertisements for Camp Lejeune and talcum powder, but we remember this law firm in our community, they uh, help represent us. And so it matters. Everybody has a role to play. Just try to do something. Do what Dr. King said in the letter from the Birmingham jail. He, he talked about you can't call yourself a moral person and see evil and look the other way. You know, neutrality in the face of evil is a choice.
1: And for those listening that, let's say they're maybe in an early part of their career, in their legal career, they just started their firm. But today, you're a national firm. From what I recall, you're getting hundreds, if not thousands, of calls a day today. But that was not always the case. And I remember watching the documentary that you and Daryl used to call yourself rent lawyers, if you could speak to
2: that. Yeah, Michael. You know, we all have a start. And hopefully, for the young lawyers listening, it's not where you start, it's where you finish. We did rent law, man. We did anything that would help us pay the rent. And a lot of times that meant doing criminal law. And we got real good at it, gave us real good trial skills, which are very beneficial today as we take on some of the largest corporations in the world. And so never ever think, oh, it's just a little criminal case or it's just a little car accident case. No, this is the case that's gonna help you Sharpen your skills to the point where you become habitual. And so you develop healthy habits. So every time you go in a courtroom, you made sure that your axe was very sharp that morning and that you were prepared for the battle when you go in that courtroom. That's what today is about as a young lawyer. You are, everything you do is going to accumulate to something to help you for some controversy, some trial, some case that you're going to have 20 years from now and you're going to think back to that moment today and say I'm glad I went through that journey because the real victory is in the journey. And I know people say, well, that's easy for you to say once you've made it. But the real victory is in the journey. One of my greatest... uh, heroes, Frederick Douglass, the great Negro abolitionist, he said, without struggle, there could be no progress. And you think about that just on its own, it's profound. But when you think about it, even in a scientific context, for an engine to move, there has to be friction. There has to be some struggle to get progress. And so what you're going through only is helping you to progress in life. I want to give a
1: huge thank you to every guest who's joined me so far this year on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com.